I had fully intended all the way until about 10 o'clock yesterday morning to uh, preach to you the next batch of traits that ought to characterize a church of Jesus Christ reaching for higher ground and wanting to abound in the ways that please God more and more. But at 10 o'clock yesterday, as the Lord has led me for about 40 years, first in private study, then as a pastor, he dries up that subject completely until it has no interest to me at all, though all week until 10 o'clock that morning, I was very excited about 25 traits that we can improve in. And he gives another subject great excitement to me and opens up, this needs to be done because the people need to be taught this. So there's been a change to me first and now to you. And if any of it appears a little uncoordinated today, it's because I didn't have my normal path of preparation for it. Of course, this is preaching about a current event. Because Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church has been on our shores for the last several days. I'd like to go back to Revelation 12, 13, 17, and 18 just for a moment, and then we'll get started. I want to remind us, as I prayed a little while ago, we do not want to arrogantly celebrate that we're not Catholics. We want to passionately serve the Lord Jesus Christ in private, personal, and church holiness in these perilous times of the last days. Because in Revelation 12, the 17th verse says, the dragon was wroth with the woman. This is pagan and papal Rome. Rome was first pagan, then it was papal. And the dragon, the devil himself, gave pagan Rome and papal Rome the power that they had. The dragon, Rome, was wroth with the woman, that's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And then it describes the church of Jesus Christ this way, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure our church keeps the commandments of God and we testify of Jesus Christ. Not any priest, not any pope, not cardinal, not bishop, not saints, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 13, we can read in verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We want to show that our lives, our names were written in the book of life by living apart from Rome. In chapter 17, which our brother Jim read to us, I like the last words of verse 14, but let's get the whole verse. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So if we're going to be in the Lord's army, we need to be faithful. So let's be faithful to all that God shows us. Then chapter 18, verse 4 I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So we want to come out and be separate from Rome and touch not the unclean thing. And we use those this particular verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about not having fellowship or communion with darkness or Belial 
in other doctrines and practices that will be mentioned before we finish today. Let's commit ourselves that this is not just an academic, intellectual, entertaining exercise, but a reminder that we want to be faithful and live holy and pure lives like the murders that went before us. When they were brought to trial, the only things that they could be accused of were their position against the Church of Rome. There were not other crimes to be brought and laid to their charge, but that they were living and believing contrary to Roman Catholicism. So, I hope that you can see clearly, and may the Lord bless our study. The greatest enemy of Bible Christianity is not Islam. It's not Mormons. It's not Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not Hindus. There is a much, 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 much greater enemy that in Revelation 17 that you heard, John wondered with great admiration. And there's great admiration because it's a so-called Christian church. That is mind-blowing. No Christians have ever been tempted by Islam. Many Christians have fallen victim to Roman Catholicism. The greatest enemy of Bible Christianity, and I hope you'll not forget that description of Rome. She is the mother of harlots, and she is the mother of abominations of the earth. Those are religious abominations. When it mentioned her spiritual fornication, it is because she has brought paganism and idolatry and the worship of man into the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's her spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. The greatest enemy of Christ. First of all, you read these chapters last night, and so I am presuming that you remember some of the things that you read. She would make war with the saints and prevail against them, and that was taught in Daniel chapter 7. Let me stop again. You know, this may happen a few times. In our Bibles, there are two great prophetic events after the New Testament. The destruction of Jerusalem fulfills so many prophecies, like the abomination of desolation and a judgment coming upon that generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It fulfills Daniel chapter 9. It fulfills Daniel chapter 12. It fulfills Matthew 24, Luke 21, and other places like that. But there is another prophecy, and that is of a great enemy called the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that would make war against the Gentile church. And that's taught in Daniel chapter 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the chapters of Revelation. So there's these two great events. The futurists stick both way out into the future and steal them all together from the church of Jesus Christ. They put them way out in the future after what they call the rapture. Who needs to know anything after the rapture? We're all going to get to say bye-bye as we're jerked out of this earth. Do you understand that? Right. Both events, the destru- everything that is said about the destruction of Jerusalem, like the abomination of desolation, is put out in the future by the futurists. Everything that is said about the Catholic Church is put out in the future by the futurists. And that's how most of us were raised. But no one had heard of that junk before 1830. Right. The preterists take both events, lump them together, and stick them back in 70 A.D. That the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, is Nero. 
So there's been no enemy of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. There's been nothing to worry about. That's preterism. Both schools of prophetic interpretation were invented by Catholics to get the attention off of them. If you take all prophecies and stick them in the future, or you take all prophecies and stick them in the past, you take the attention off the church of Rome, who was burning our ancestors in the faith for 1,500 years. All by the working of Satan and his lying wonders in that church. So the Lord has been very merciful to us. Futurists stick it all out in the future. Doesn't mean anything to us. Preterists stick it all in the past. Doesn't mean anything to us. We understand that we have two separate events that we need to pull apart and not mix them together. And I am laying precious truth on you right now with these words. We pull them apart and do not confuse them. The abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the man of sin sitting in the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. One's the Roman armies encompassing that city of pagan Rome. The other is the popes sitting in a church of God in papal Rome. Papal meaning pertaining to the pope. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for showing us these things. And you know... If you, if you say and ask me, are there only a few of us that believe this anymore? Absolutely. Because we live in the perilous times of the last days when men have exchanged the truth for fables. Where did our fathers stand? Almost all of them understood exactly what I'm going to teach you today. Until the mid-19th century. There's going to be war with the saints, and that little horn of Rome was going to prevail. Did you see in Revelation chapter 13 that that beast would overcome them for a while? How long was it in Revelation 13? 42 months. How long is it in Daniel 7? Time, times, and half a time. How long is it in Revelation 12? Time, times, and half a time. What is time times and half a time? Time is one, times is two, and a half is a half, so you have three and a half. Three and a half years is 42 months, is 1,260 days of 42 months of 30 days. It's all the same time period. It's beautiful. beautiful. Well, why did the Lord use 42 months? Because He wanted you to think a little bit. War with the saints and prevailed. Great words against the Most High. This little horn of Rome. The Pope of Rome. That Pope will think to change times and laws. God's commandments and the way things that, and the way things are to be done. He wins, that is the Pope wins for this time, which is one, times, which is plural, and a half equals three and a half equals forty-two Months equals 1,260. Man of sin, as he's described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, equals a man proficient in sin. When someone in the Bible is called a man of war, he is proficient in war. When the Bible calls a man the man of sin, he is proficient in doing something well. Sinning. The Pope is the greatest sinner on earth taking the name of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ 
and blaspheming God His Father and Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, elevating Mary, worshiping Mary, worshiping a cracker. It is abominable. He is the man of sin. No one has ever sinned like the popes of Rome. It's in, they're incapable of sinning like the popes of Rome. They're the leader of a church of Jesus Christ. And yet look at what they do with the words of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ, the Lord's Supper of Christ, and on and on we could go, which we cannot do. There's 400 slides. How long do we take on that one? Don't go to sleep on me with that big number. Okay, son of perdition is his other name. There's only one other person in the Bible called son of perdition. It's Judas Iscariot. Perfect. The popes are just like Judas Iscariot, pretending to be Christ, but the enemies of Christ. They don't want, they don't love Christ. They want to betray Christ, but they sure put up a good front so that even Peter, James, and John couldn't identify who was going to betray Jesus. And the word perdition means to be judged. How was Judas judged? Did he die in a peaceful old age? Or did he hang himself violently? And when he hung himself, he didn't do a very good job because when he hit the end of the rope, it caused his bowels to burst out of him all over a field. That is my Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells you something about the devil. Jesus told Judas, and the Bible tells us about Judas, that Satan entered into him to go and do that. And look what Satan did to a man that agreed to follow him. Satan is a destroyer. And the Lord Jesus Christ will judge. And so Judas Iscariot is called the son of perdition. And so are the popes of Rome in 2 Thessalonians 2. They oppose all that is called God. Anything divine, they will take credit for it. They exalt themselves above all that is called God. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It is so shameful, the junk that I was taught in the past and that most of you were taught in the past. Not understanding 2 Thessalonians 2 at all. I mean, at all. Let me stop right here. Bob Jones University doesn't have a clue about some of these things along with all the other Bible colleges and seminaries in this country. Not a clue. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to conclude with this in a few hours. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul told those Thessalonians, don't you be confused and worried that Jesus Christ is about to come. Don't let anyone deceive you by any means. There are false epistles floating around with our names on them. There is word. There is doctrine floating around. It is all wrong. Let no man deceive you by any means. Jesus Christ cannot come back until there is a falling away first and the man of sin is revealed, then Jesus can come back to destroy him. They teach Jesus Christ comes back with the rapture, everyone's out of here, and then the Antichrist comes on the scene, known as the man of sin in that particular passage. They reverse Paul. And Paul said, let no man deceive you by any means. The order is a great apostasy. The man of sin, son of perdition, sitting in a church, a temple of God, claiming himself to be God, 
Then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and destroys him. And when you go to Daniel 7, you have the Roman Empire, then you have the ten horns of Europe, then you have the Roman Catholic papacy growing out of that, and Jesus Christ comes and destroys that little horn of Rome in perfect agreement with 2 Thessalonians 2. Bob Jones and all the other fundamentalist, conservative, so-called Bible-believing institutions in our country do not have a clue because they drop to their knees in their love of Jews and bought the C.I. Schofield Bible and all the lies it contains. C.I. Schofield was a Jew. C.I. Schofield wrote Jewish fables. C.I. Schofield and his Jewish fables have fed Zionism for the United States to send money and protection to that little Christ-hating, God-denying nation over at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. They have taken all prophecies of the Bible and stuck them in the future. And the biggest thing that we all need to be doing is sending money to Israel so they can buy more F-16s. Since God isn't with them, they need our military power to keep Islam at bay. Thank you, Lord. Second Thessalonians 2, Paul couldn't make it any plainer. The order is this. A falling away into false doctrine... The man of sin is revealed, then Jesus comes. His words to the Thessalonians were, Jesus cannot come until these two events happen first, but they reverse that. You say, you sound excited about it or worked up about it. Yes, I'm worked up about it. I hate error. I hope that you hate error. My spirit is stirred within me. We're supposed to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And do you know what was once delivered? Apostasy first. Man of sin second, Jesus third. Do you know what? I'm going to defend that. I'll die for that order. They don't have a clue. I'll give you 20 questions anytime you want 20 questions to take to a professor at Bob Jones to show that he's totally ignorant of the Bible about prophecy and make sure you pick the best they have on prophecy. They don't have a clue. They don't know who John the Baptist is. They don't know who Elijah the prophet is. They don't know that John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet. They are so hung up on wanting to send money to Israel to help those Christ-hating, God-denying people over there have land that was given to them 3,000 years ago. God fulfilled every prophecy about the land 3,000 years ago. Okay, how long we take on that slide? (laughs) This enemy of Christ is going to sit in the temple of God as God. Now that couldn't be the temple in Jerusalem because the temple in Jerusalem was leveled just a few months after Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. What's called the temple of God? Some antichrist building in Brussels, Belgium is not the temple of God. It, what's called the temple of God in the New Testament? A church of Jesus Christ. This man is going to sit in a church of Jesus Christ and proclaim that he's God. He's going to operate with satanic power, signs, and lying wonders. There'll be total deception of those perishing according to 2 Thessalonians 2.10 with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. It follows a falling away which is an apostasy from apostolic truth. Satanic lies and doctrines of devils are described in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as belonging to that system of religion. The great falling away. Can we, do we have a couple of examples in the Bible of what a great falling away is? The word falling away is 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. 1 Timothy 4 says, 
Men shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What are two of those doctrines? Celibacy and fasting from meat. What religion in the history of the world that fell away... I don't, you don't bring up pagan religions to me. They never fell away. They never had anything to do with Jesus Christ. Right. What religion fell away from apostolic doctrine to forbid priests and nuns to marry and forbid meat? Those of us who grew up in the north, maybe even in the south, remember what they served for lunch on Friday in all public schools? Give, fish sticks. I used to, every single stinking Friday, there were fish sticks. Why? Yes, fornication with the kings of the earth, dictating the terms of public schools in a nation that was anti-Catholic. Ask me this question. Are you going to survive this day? I don't know. Blasphemy. Daniel 7, Revelation 13. Blasphemy in power for that period of time. We're past that period of time, by the way. He's being consumed until the end. He has no authority. There's a lot of fawning after him, but he's not putting people to death like he did for 1260 years, which were called in history the Dark Ages. What do they call them nowadays? Middle Ages. I wonder why they want to get rid of that word dark. The great whore. Now, we are the bride of Christ. And we're called a virgin in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The virgin church and her remnant are called a woman because it's the bride of Christ This church is called a woman as well, but she's a great whore because she's a prostitute that commits spiritual adultery with paganism and the kings of this world. This great whore is drunk because she has killed so many saints over the last 2,000 years. Jesus wins. The thrones were cast down. The throne was cast down by the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. The beast is slain and given to the burning flame. Daniel 7. Jesus will destroy the man of sin at his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 Babylon the great is fallen. Is fallen. Bryant read to us from Revelation 18. The devil and the popes are all in the lake of fire. Revelation 20 and verse 10. You know we could have kept reading. 19. Jesus Christ is on a white horse. feeding those particular beasts to the birds of the air. Chapter 20 has this verse, that they're all in the lake of fire, and so when the Bible ends with chapters 21 and 22. Okay, here we go. Here's our first picture, children. I'm sorry that it took us an hour and a half to get there. Belhana, this is the Pope. Right here. There's Pope Francis with his Dagon fish hat, sitting on a white throne. I know someone who's going to sit on a white throne. He's not going to wear a Dagon fish hat. And every man's going to give an account to him, especially this man. See the cherubim? Here's what Pope Pius X said about the Pope. The Pope is not simply the representative of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, He is Jesus Christ Himself under the veil of the flesh. Now, I didn't go back into the middle of the Dark Ages to pull that. There's so many of these quotes, it would take until sunset to share them with you. This is Pope Pius X of 
150 years ago. That's blasphemy. In white pajamas claiming to be Jesus Christ Himself. Here is Pope Francis, the man in our country the last few days, sitting on his throne, his chair, his chair that he personally chose how it was to be designed. Now I'm going to have something to say. Pope Francis was very carefully selected, and the devil is operating very subtly by having him be the Pope. This Pope, compared to Benedict XVI, is very humble, very much a socialist, very much a compromiser in certain ways, very much concerned about the poor, very personable. One of his favorite motions is thumbs up as he goes around. Big smile on his face. Because as Proverbs 5 and 6 tells us, chapter 5, verse 6, whores change their methods so you can't ever figure out what they're up to. The Bible tells us that is the character of a whore, and Revelation 17 tells us the Roman Catholic Church is the great whore. Would the great whore be deficient in the skills of an ordinary whore? No. So this guy is like your grandpa. This guy is like your retired dentist. If you look at him and are deceived, you have to look beyond the appearance. Do you think the devil is going to put somebody with red skin and a glowing 666 in his forehead with a pitchfork and a long tail and pointed ears? No. Belhana, that's the Pope. He's got a microphone this time. And his chair is, this is, I, I can't do this very often. Here's the papal insignia back there. But he picked this coat of arms that goes on each arm. Arm, arm, and there's his triple tiara. Now see, Benedict liked to go out in public. Even if he was going to Subway, he wanted to wear his triple tiara. So they had to get rid of him and bring in this guy because nobody liked Benedict. And see, Benedict resigned. Popes don't do that. This is the first Jesuit that was ever a pope. The Society of Jesus. This little, his insignia there has the triple tiara on it. He doesn't wear it because he he wants you to like him. Here he is getting his papal ring on the day that he became pope back there in March of 2013. Man of sin and the son of perdition. Oh, by the way, what's the restraining power that kept the Pope from being revealed in his time? And why was Paul so obscure about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? It was the Caesars of the Roman Empire. When they were taken out of the way by the Visigoths overrunning Rome in 476 A.D., lo and behold, the Bishop of Rome filled the vacuum and took over the Holy Roman Empire. Very easy to understand. Why did Paul say it so obscurely? Because if it had been said that Rome was going to be overthrown, the Christians would have been persecuted much more severely than they were. And if you go look in Acts, you will find that it was in Thessalonica where they were accused the most of preaching another king instead of Caesar. You can read it in Acts chapter 17. He said, I told you all these things when I was with you. But when he wrote that letter that was going to be circulated throughout the Roman Empire, he chose obscurity in his language. It's not obscure to anyone. It was never obscure to our fathers in the faith. Here he is again, Pope Francis. 
Here he is again. Just looks like a retired dentist. Looks like your grandpa. But he stands at the top of a devilish system of religion that's filled with blasphemy and drunk with the blood of the saints. Do you think he's going to come out and apologize for all the blood of Christians that has been shed on the earth? Here he is in his Pope mobile. I hope you can see him right there. That's visiting the crowd in Rome. Okay, what does he like to do? He likes to perform the Mass. The word Mass is a word describing a Catholic church service. In the Catholic church service called the Mass, they turn this cracker right there into Jesus Christ. He is going to say some words, and he's going to turn that cracker into Jesus Christ. He is worshiping it right now because he is about to use power that they claim is greater than the creation of the universe to turn this cracker into God. When they say into Jesus, when they say that they're going to turn the cracker into Jesus, they mean his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. That's his God part of his nature. Body, Blood, soul, and divinity. And I'm sorry you can't see it clearly. He turns crackers into God in his mass. That's what he's doing. That's Pope Francis doing that right there. This is him blessing the cracker that he has turned into God with incense. This is in Madison Square Garden a few days ago. Jesus is lying right there on top. He's worshiping Him. He loves Jesus. But not our Jesus. He is worshiping His Jesus. Inside this sunburst, this thing is called a monstrance. In there is an unused cracker. He is worshiping His Christ. This is incredibly serious to him. I'm about to show you something that's going to blow your mind about his seriousness about worshiping a cracker. They have a cracker in there with that sunburst around it. Yes, you may say, well, that's so obvious they're worshiping the sun. Of course, they adopted paganism. That's why the Bible says that they are the mother of abominations of the earth and are guilty of spiritual fornication by bringing paganism into Christianity. That is just mind-blowing. Where did Paul ever do such a thing? Peter? Anyone? Where did this come from? Unbelievable. Paganism. Idolatry. He's holding up his idol, and it's a little cracker. He's having devotions. His cracker's in there. You have no idea. It is called the real presence. It is called the Blessed Sacrament. It is called the Eucharist. He believes that Jesus is right there, and it is by this means that we have the most intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Right there. Where's our Jesus? He is right inside us, and He's walking around this candlestick. This is Pope Frank. When you see him doing this, That's a public facade by a very intelligent Jesuit 
that knows what this world needs right now for ecumenism of all religions coming together. Benedict XVI couldn't get it done. This is, he is totally different. He is more like John Paul II. And John Paul II made such great advances, again, for the Catholic Church. Not in authority to take lives, but just in popularity, trying to stem the flow of people leaving their church. Okay, now watch this. Frank adores the cracker nightly. Here are Frank's words about what he's doing. What I really prefer is adoration in the evening. Even when I get distracted and think of other things, or even fall asleep praying, in the evening then, between 7 and 8 o'clock, I stay in front of the Blessed Sacrament for an hour in adoration. Pope Francis. One hour every night from 7 to 8, worshiping that little cracker. Where is our Lord Jesus Christ? Now I've said here, He's on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Sitting on a throne with a rod of iron in His hand. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's not some cracker. You say, this is impossible. Belhana, can you believe that? He worships a cracker. If you need a couple bucks on the way home to stop at QT and buy some crackers, maybe you can take one home, put a little peanut butter on it. Belhana asked this week, who is the Pope? So we're going to help her. We're going to help me. I need to get it off my chest. <laughs> and I want, you to, I want you to revel in the truth that the Lord's shown us. Amen. This is Frank's cracker from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Frank, while he was down there being a uh, archbishop, they had a leftover wafer and they stuck it away. And they came back and checked it sometime later and it had turned into flesh and blood. This little piece of stuff was hauled to a cardiologist in New York City that testified it was heart tissue. Now, you ask me, is that real? Or do they just make that up and doctor the photography? It could be real. Because 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the man of sin is going to operate with the power of Satan in all lying wonders. I don't know, and I don't care, because I wouldn't care how many miracles Pope Francis did, because Deuteronomy 13 tells me if a man does a miracle, so what? Did he quote you the Bible? Is what the Bible tells us. We're just going to go with the Bible. So they think that's part of the heart of Jesus. Frank has kissed a monstrance once, and the crackers started to bleed. You can go on the internet and find these. The stories written by Catholics will blow your mind as to how superstitious and ignorant they are. They just foam on and on and on about this instead of the one that hung on the cross, was buried, rose again, and sits at God's right hand. You say, well, what about the cup? Was there anything in Revelation chapter 17 about a cup? Did it say that they had a golden cup in her hand? There's one thing Catholics are known for, and it's a golden chalice. Is that a pretty decent cup? When was the last time you took, took a swig of something out of a cup like that? Now, that, that's a pretty big cup, and it's made out of gold, and there's Frank. You know, he's pretty intense about what he's doing. 
He's no thumbs up at this moment. Well, there's a thumb. <laughs> he's looking at his golden chalice. He thinks he's got the blood of Jesus floating around down in there. See, it doesn't matter if you've got the cracker or you've got the blood. If you've got the cracker, you've got the blood right. because the cracker is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And the blood is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. So you only need the cracker. And so for 1,500 years, if you were a Catholic, you never got to touch the wine. That's only in the last 30 years. You never got to touch the wine. Only the priests got to drink the wine. Uh, many of them were drunkards, well known in history. But because you got the cracker, you got the body and the blood. That's the Catholic doctrine. Many pages have been written about how you get the whole Christ under either species. There he is, taking a drink out of his golden chalice, the cup of abominations of the earth at, a, at an altar of the Catholic Church. This is what had to go on in Philadelphia this week. These are nuns working overtime, and they've been working for months because there were two million people that were going to take communion. Now that's a lot of that's a lot of little wafers. That's a lot of little crackers. So this is uh, poor Claire, poor Claire's uh, order. It's an enclosed community. That means they don't ever come out in, into the public. They're called poor Claire's, and so poor Claire's are working hard, and they were they were thrilled to be able to do this to make all these little crackers that are going to turn into Jesus. This is Mass in Madison Square Garden. That's how small Frank is way down there, and they put this in there. That's usually not hanging there. Here's Mass in Philadelphia yesterday. Here's at the United Nations a couple days ago. There's Pope Frank. Here are ambassadors from every nation on earth. Here's a joint session of Congress of our nation. Lord God, have mercy upon America and forgive her for giving this man any attention and allowing him any access to our leaders. Forgive this nation and have mercy upon it and preserve it for the sake of your true children here that know who this man is and hate his abominations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now on his way to America, he stopped in Cuba to meet this man. Fidel Castro, he doesn't care who he's with. They're all God's children. Except us. You know, here's our president and first lady meeting the man in pajamas. There he is, Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church at Andrews Air Force Base. This is back when President Obama visited Rome to get schooled and interviewed by the Pope sitting at his desk. This one kind of hurts me a little bit that our president would look like a little schoolboy called in before the principal of the school. Do you see what, what, how it, why it bothers me? This is the Pope in one of his chambers receiving ambassadors from all over the world. This is the Pope with two prime ministers of Israel, the present one and a past one. He doesn't care who he's with. Christ haters. He looks like John Hagee. Here he is with an Islamic cleric in Turkey. The senior Islamic cleric. So he's with Muslims. He's with Jews. He's with agnostics, atheists, and so-called Christians. Here he is getting blessed by the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church. They're enemies. 
He's got 1.2 billion Catholics of the Western sort that are Latin out of Rome. He's got 300 million Greek Orthodox that are Greek out of the Eastern Church. But they're trying to make up right now. See, he doesn't care who he's with. He'll go to a Buddhist temple. He'll even pray with Kenneth Copeland. This is, this is James Robison. For those of you that know the charismatic movement at all, James, Kenneth Copeland, those charismatics aren't very anointed. anointed. They don't even know who they're holding hands with. Look at Kenneth. He's so worked up right now. But I'll bet he held back the tongues. The Swiss guard would have probably thrown him out in a trash heap. And this is the one that bothers me. And I've been working up to this. And it took me a long time to get here. This is Wednesday. Do you know who this man is? That is Rick Warren. That's the first time I've ever seen him in a suit and a tie. He has never worn anything like that to church at Saddleback Community Church in Southern California, I can promise you. I've never seen him look so good. He's always wearing casual clothes because he's a casual pastor that has no conviction about anything except we we got to grow and bring in all the world. He has gone and visited the Pope, but here he is greeting the Pope on Wednesday. He is a Baptist. He was trained in a Baptist seminary. Saddleback was started as a Southern Baptist church. He is a Baptist. Sorry. He's a Baptist. The Southern Baptists should throw him out. They should put Saddleback off limits. They should burn his book, The Purpose Driven Life. What in the world is he doing there? He's there because he spoke Friday at the Pope's family conference in Philadelphia. That's why he's there. This is Wednesday. On Friday, he was the Pope's chosen speaker at the conference in Philadelphia. Yes, I'm worked up. We should be worked up. Our fathers are rolling over in the grave thinking about things like this happening. You know, I look at this picture. Do you see anything there that causes you a little bit of concern? The person between these two? Let's zoom in on her. What in the world is a Hindu there with the third eye chakra? This is the point to let the devil in. That's the the third eye for contacting spirits and obtaining power from the universe. That's why Hindus wear that. What is she? She's got a big grin because guess what? Baptists and Catholics like each other. Who knows what she's there for? Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that Rick Warren was with the Pope. Who's he holding hands with here? Oh, I should I should have left that a secret. That's Elton John. This is just a few months ago in Washington. Guess what they might have been talking about before our leaders? Do you think it might have something to do with the initials of our website? LGBT? Lesbians? Bisexuals, gay, and transvestites. Transgenders. Look at that. Oh! He's dressed there for Elton. Elton said to him right here, what if I were to give you a kiss, Rick? His response? It'd be the kiss heard around the world. 
God, good ministers will blast the Pope. I read to you the first six verses of 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. I love it when the Bible tells us that. Let me uh, get a different color here. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. This is the falling away of 2 Thessalonians 2. They're going to give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This is the Word of God. This is what we believe. Pope Francis is a devil worshiper and a leader of other devil worshipers with doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. There is one of their abominable doctrines and commanding to abstain from meats. There's number two, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For those that know the truth, we can eat anything. Thank you, Lord. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. It is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Timothy, if, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, doctrines of devils, a falling away, celibacy, and fasting, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Thus, today's subject. You have seen these slides before. It's actually 18 months ago, 17 months ago. I'll go through them quickly. Repetition is how we learn anything. And there are many here that haven't seen these. Please bear with me. We'll go quickly. Five kingdoms. It's a study of Daniel chapter 2 and uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 2, Daniel 7. Five kingdoms. God took special note of five kingdoms on earth in the prophecies of Daniel. They cover about 2,500 years from 530 B.C. of Nebuchadnezzar to uh, the current date. They're fascinating world history, and God gave it to us in advance. They explain much church history, and they teach us doctrine. They glorify the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Daniel is a key prophet. Chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and Daniel gave the interpretation of it back to the king. Chapters 7 through 12 are Daniel's own visions of the future. Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six are Bible stories. The last six are Daniel's prophecies. But in chapter 2, which is a Bible story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of an image, which we're going to look at in a moment, it was Nebuchadnezzar's revelation from God of what was going to happen. Jesus said Daniel helps us interpret prophecy. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Let him that readeth understand. Daniel explains several symbols of revelation. When my father began reading Revelation 13 about a beast that came up out of the sea, did you notice that it had some features of the leopard, some features of the bear? Were you making connections in your head? This is the combined beast because it says in in Daniel chapter 7, it says there their being of those other beasts were not totally taken away, but they were incorporated into Rome. And there it is in Revelation 13. Daniel's prophecies are fulfilled or being fulfilled for confirmation. It is a great book to start with in learning Bible prophecy. It is the place to start learning Bible prophecy. You don't go to Revelation, the last book and in most advanced Revelation, you want to go back to Daniel. 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw a terrible image in the night made of various metals. The head was of gold, which is a valuable precious metal. The chest was silver, a lesser precious precious metal. The loins were brass, lesser in value but stronger. And the legs were iron, very strong, that's able to crush all the other three metals. The feet were part iron and clay, a weak mixture. A supernatural stone came and struck this image on its feet. It broke the whole image to pieces and dust. The stone became a great mountain to fill the earth. There are four kingdoms plus a final different one, the one of the stone. There's the image. Here's the stone down here. This is the image or something like it that Nebuchadnezzar saw. His dream. He was told by Daniel what shall be in the latter days. The dream and the interpretation were certain and sure. I love serving a God like ours. Everything is certain. Everything is sure. And He tells us in advance. The dream covers world history to the very end. Daniel's other visions are based on this foundation of the four empires. There are only a total of five kingdoms. Four worldly plus one supernatural from heaven. The image, the gold head represents Babylon. I hope you can see the little words on both sides. The gold head is Babylon. The silver chest is Media Persia. The brass is Greece. And the iron is Rome. And the stone made without hands is the kingdom of God. Daniel put it this way. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Daniel 2.44 And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. John the Baptist and Jesus burst on the scene in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And what did they have to say? The kingdom of God is at hand. What is Bob Jones and other dispensational premillennial schools of interpretation want us to believe? The kingdom of God is not yet here yet. 2,000 years later than when Jesus and John said it was here. Jesus said all men are pressing into it. Luke 16.16 The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. But if 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 you start worshiping Jews... And if you start worshiping Catholics, that's where you end up. Now, you, you all know that Bob Jones worships Jews because that's why they are dispensationalists. That's why they're premillennialists. All they can think about is the millennial kingdom on earth when the Jews will be restored to preeminence and will be their Gentile dogs. Even though the whole New Testament is, there is no more distinction between right. Jews and Gentiles. Right. Now, I said something really crude. I said that Bob Jones loved Catholics. Have you ever visited their art museum? What else may I conclude? They love their pictures of Mary standing on the serpent's head. That's Catholic theology. That Mary's the one that defeated the serpent. But but when I read Genesis 3.15 in my King James Bible, it is a singular male pronoun that defeated the devil and gave him a mortal wound. The Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. You ought to see Mary in that art museum giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. And on and on we could go. Are you upset, Pastor, about a local educational institution? Yes, because it's corrupted so many preachers that have gone out 
who don't have a clue about what the Bible teaches. God of heaven will set up a kingdom. The stone was without hands, meaning that it was of a divine or spiritual origin. It hit the image in the feet. That means during the time of the fourth kingdom. When did Jesus appear? When when was the kingdom of God preached by John the Baptist? During the Roman Empire. By the way, the last verse of Revelation 17 that Brother Jim read to us a little while ago, it said, and who is this woman? She is, the, she is the city that reigns over the kings of the earth. Amen. When John wrote the book of Revelation, was there a city that reigned over the kings of the earth? Do you need to think hard about it? Was it Paris? London? Singapore? New York? Brussels? Rome. Simple. Why didn't he say Rome? Very smart by God's mercy and grace so that those epistles circulating... We're not saying that Rome was going to be overthrown or that Rome was wicked or that Rome was Babylon. Because Babylon has fallen were the next words in chapter 18, right? <laughs> Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus. The Bible tells us that. John and Jesus began preaching in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. The God of heaven set up a kingdom during this kingdom. They both announced the kingdom of God at hand. The God of heaven set up a kingdom. It's clearly the kingdom of God and of heaven. If the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, what can you call it? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense to you? If the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that C.I. Schofield wants to make a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in his Bible? But when you go read the New Testament, Jesus used them as synonyms, and in some verses we'll use them both. He can use both in one sentence about the same thing because they are not opposite, different at all whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. It's the God of heaven that set up a kingdom and His Son He put on the throne of it. The kingdom was present and men were pressing into it. It was not visible because it was a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said so. Jesus was crowned king of it at His ascension when He took the throne at the right hand of God. And God brought Gentiles worldwide into it. Praise His glorious name. And that's proven right there in Acts fifteen sixteen at the great council of Jerusalem. The God of heaven set up a kingdom. It began small, but it filled the earth. And we're part of that. Enemies said it turned the world upside down. Amen. Constantine became a so-called Christian for political ends. Can you believe that? There were so many Christians in the world that a Caesar had to convert, sort of, in order for political expediency. Amazing. It left only small nations, chaff, instead of world empires. And that's all we have today, about 300 nations on earth. It has a presence today throughout the whole world. We were able to send money for a meeting place for those in the kingdom of heaven among the aborigines of Malaysia a few weeks ago. Jesus presently reigns with a rod of iron. He said that he had already received that reign in Revelation chapter 2. This is the kingdom Paul offered to the Jews in Hebrews chapter 12 a spiritual kingdom with Jesus Christ on the throne. In a day soon, Jesus will show who He is. That is the blessed and only potentate. Citizenship is by repentance, faith, and baptism. He will reign forever and soon deliver up the kingdom to God. And God will be all in all and will enjoy the new universe with Him. Remember, the gold is Babylon. The first kingdom, number one. Silver is Media Persia. It's the second kingdom. Then we have brass representing Alexander the Great and Greece. It's the third kingdom. Iron represented the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome. 
And then the stone made without hands is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Call it what you will. It's all the same thing. It is a spiritual kingdom. Daniel's first vision, and we made it through Daniel 2. Daniel 7. Daniel chapters 7 through 12 have closer views of parts of Daniel 2 and those four world empires. Here, instead of one image with different metals, we have four beasts representing those empires. There are only four, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Just like before, the four world empires, and your children should know them in order, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Persian, Alexander the Great of Greece, Rome, Caesar Augustus, Herod was an appointed king, Tiberius Caesar, so forth. Jesus Christ's kingdom began during the Roman, as I've said several times and shown you with verses. This prophecy of Daniel 7 focuses on a latter power of Rome. Here are the four beasts. A lion with wings of an eagle. That's king of the birds and king of the beasts. A bear representing Media Persia. A leopard representing the speed of Alexander the Great's conquest with four heads because his empire was divided to his four generals when he died at the age of 30. It had the wings of a fowl because it, it even a leopard wasn't fast enough to accurately depict the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the earth. And here's a great red dragon, aha, that you read in Revelation chapter 12 that's also in Daniel chapter 7. Here they are as well. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. There's the ten horns out of a dragon. Their political powers, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome. Now the lion is a king of beasts and a king of the fowl. It's Babylon, the greatest kingdom, according in God's opinion. The bear rose on side with three ribs, Media, Persia. Three of the provinces of Babylon were sucked up first by the Medes and the Persians. We don't even need to know who they are. We absolutely know who came next. And it can be any three that you want it to be. You can go read 20 or 30 volumes of history about which provinces of Babylon were eaten. We don't need it. We know who number two was because we're living so far past it. But remember, if you're Daniel and you're Daniel's generation and you're the Jews that came back to Jerusalem, you didn't know any of this. You could read about it in your papers and go online for it. The leopard, four heads and wings, describing his dominion. God gave that leopard dominion because Alexander the Great conquered the known earth. The dragon was dreadful. The dragon was strong. It was made of iron, and it had ten horns. The nations of Europe that were part of the Roman Empire and that it evolved into when Rome was overthrown by the Visigoths. The emphasis is on, in Daniel 7, the emphasis is on a little horn coming out of this fourth beast. This is so important. There are so many men that have got confused because they will jump to this little horn growing out of something else. Now Daniel chapter 8 has a little horn growing out of a different empire. But Daniel chapter 8 is limited to the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. Very specifically stated by name. It says Greece. It says Medes and Persians. It is limited. So the little horn coming out is growing out of the Greek empire. It's Antiochus Epiphanes 
that wrecked havoc on Jerusalem for a short period of time until the Maccabees overthrew him. Daniel 8 is about the Maccabees overthrowing Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire out of Syria, battling the Ptolemies out of Egypt, two remnants, two generals of Alexander's old Greek Empire. And because Jerusalem was right in the middle, it's written about. Daniel chapter 11 goes over the same information again from a different vantage point about the man Antiochus Epiphanes and about the Maccabees that did know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And so Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, is to remember when the Maccabees threw Antiochus out of Jerusalem, rededicated the temple which was built by Zerubbabel, Jesus honored that festival, though it is not prescribed in the Bible in John chapter 10 when he went and stood in Solomon's porch in Jerusalem at a feast in the winter. And there's only one feast in the winter on the Jewish calendar. It's Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, about what the Maccabees did. Horns existing together have to be contemporaries. The ten horns are ten kings or kingdoms that would come out of Rome. The little horn would not come until after the ten, because it tells us that. Rome fell in 476 into ten European kingdoms that were left of all its territory. And after this date, a different Roman power came into being. It grew out of the fourth beast. It is truly Roman. It is unrelated to the little horn of Greece of Daniel chapter 8 that I just mentioned to you. It was different, because it says it was different, from the political military kingdoms of the other ten. It had eyes for intelligence, knowledge, and oversight. It didn't have weapons. It didn't have medals. It had eyes. And it had a big mouth. It had a big mouth speaking great things of blasphemy. There's a graphic of it. And here are ten features. One, two, three, and so forth. Ten ten different features about the little horn that grew out of the Roman beast. See, it's red because it was a red dragon. You can go back and look at these at any time. The little horn of Rome. It was Roman. It came after the fall of the Roman Empire. It came up among European kingdoms. It came up small, but later waxed great. Plucked up three of the ten European kingdoms. Eyes like a man for intelligence, wisdom, and oversight. A mouth speaking great things of blasphemy against God. Cast in the lake of fire at the judgment. And his look was more stout than his peer horns. He was more arrogant and proud than any king of Europe. For those of you that remember a little bit about the Holy Roman Empire and the Dark Ages, the kings of Europe would have to come and ask permission to be king from the popes of Rome. His look was more stout. Made war with the saints? Who made war with the saints? Who's got the blood of the saints in them? The church of Rome prevailed against the saints in this war. The little horn kingdom was overthrown at the day of judgment. If the little horn was a different kind of a kingdom, we're adding all these statements from Daniel 7 together about the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church shall wear out the saints of the Most High God as they ran to try to hide from that enemy. This Pope would think he could change God's times and laws. He would have dominion for three and a half times. Time, times, and half a time. 1260 years. 42 months of years. God will consume His kingdom until the judgment. And the saints, that's you and me, will get the kingdom of God in the end. What is the little horn of Rome? It must be Roman, so forget everything else, because it came out of Rome. It's the little horn of Rome. 
It must date from shortly after 476 A.D. It is a religious power that persecuted the saints. It is able to wear out the saints for 1260 years. It has destroyed the second coming of Christ. Do we know of anything in history that fits this description? We know of something that perfectly fits this description. Right there he is. That's Benedict XVI with the head of Dagon, the fish god, on his head. See how it looks like an open mouth of a fish? Where do you think they got that thing from? The 67th book of the Bible? There's priests at an ordination service. There's Pope John Paul II in his slobbering days getting kissed on his hand. A mouth speaking great things. Let me read a few quotes to you from Catholics. These are authoritative statements about the popes. All must be subject to him who has had all things put under him. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, God. And the vicar of God, the representative of God. The Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. Pius V. Hence the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven, king of earth, and king of the lower region. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. I've given you that one already, Pius X. We declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Most his titles, most divine of all heads, holy father of fathers, Bishop of bishops. Who is the chief bishop? Head of all the holy churches. We have a head of our church. Jesus Christ. Pontifex Maximus. The great bridge builder. There's only one meeting between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Don't go to God for forgiveness of sins. Come to me. John Paul II, 1984. The church may, by divine right, confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their person, and condemn them to flames. Catholic Church. The power of the priest is the power of the divine person. For the transubstantiation, that's their doctrine, they transform the substance of the cracker. Look at the word. Transubstantiation. Transformation of the substance of the cracker. For the transubstantiation of the bread requires as much power as the creation of the world. Infant, let's think about some of their abominations and what they've come up with. Infant baptism by immersion. That's way back then. Extreme unction, last rites to dying people. Musical instruments, they didn't have them for a thousand years. Celibacy enforced, transubstantiation, sprinkling the universal method of baptism. Laity no longer get the cup. Infallibility of the Pope. Assumption of Mary. That means she went to heaven without dying. Cardinal doctrine of the Catholic Church. As recently as 1950. Immaculate conception of Mary. 1954. That immaculate conception does not mean that Mary conceived Jesus immaculately without sin. It means that St. Anne conceived Mary immaculately without sin. Mary was sinless. She was conceived without sin. These are pictures of 
men dying for the faith, our ancestors. They're not good drawings because there weren't men there with smartphones to take pictures of them in high definition, okay? So I'm sorry, I really am. You know, they're hanging. This one's being rolled on a wheel back and forth over the flames that are right down here. Are you ready to recant? Are you ready to say that you're not a Baptist but a Catholic? Roll them back under the, over the fire. This guy is held down. They're driving stakes down through his shins. This person is, is all tied down. They're pouring water down his throat that he can't get a move away from. Here's the friars, monks, priests, ambassadors of the Catholic Church overseeing it. These are what our fathers in the faith grew up reading for their books. In books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, Martyr's Mirror, and the churches of the Valley of Piedmont of northern Italy. A torch. The guy's hanging upside down. Priest is down here. Are you ready to become a Catholic? Before we burn you some more? This guy has a rope around his neck and it's being twisted behind, choking him slowly. And here's the priest with all love of souls wanting him to become a Catholic. This person is tied down, locked in place, and his feet are right here to have hot coals pressed against them while the priests tell him to renounce the fact that he believes and he holds to believer's baptism or any other doctrine that we hold to. Men being burned in public. Sedia gestatoria. Hauling the Pope around. This is Pope Pius XII. This is just back when I was born. Being hauled around on the priest's Shoulders. Does that look like Peter or Jesus? That's how he was moved around. There it is again up close. The chair that he's sitting on. I hope you can see the gloved hands that are moving him around. This is, this is just a few decades ago. Half of you in here are old enough to, know, to be alive. This is the funeral of Pope John Paul II. I want you to notice purple and scarlet. Were those colors mentioned in Revelation 18? That just happened in 2005. Look at the colors. Benedict XVI. What about gold and precious stones? Bryant read to us verse after verse after verse of Revelation 18 about the merchants being disappointed they don't have anyone to sell to. Look at all these. Look at all the gold. There's the triple tiara of the Catholic Church. They have about 15 or 20 of these. I can't remember the exact number. It's 15 or 20. What does the triple crown stand for? We'll come to it in a moment. There's another one in their collection. These are given by the kings of Europe. See the the triple? Tierra? Three crowns in one? What's this? That's that monstrance that holds the cracker god. There's their cracker god. I wonder how it comes out round when you're supposed to break the bread. Doesn't the Bible teach us to break the bread? Right. What's this? It's a Catholic baptism. you got to have the priest stuff salt in the baby's mouth. That's one of 150 different little traditions that are associated with a baptism of a Catholic kid. And there's a picture up here on the table of David Farmer in his christening gown in his grandpa's lap. David wanted you all to see that. I made him... Give it to me yesterday. 
But there's a picture of him in his christening gown being baptized as a Catholic. I need to hear that tone again from a, a Chicago lad saying the name of your church. St. John Biani. Thank you, Lord, for saving us all. Amen. What's that? That's Lent. Ashes on the forehead, like a Hindu. Remember why it's right here? If I read the book of Revelation that said something about my right hand and my forehead, and I was the pastor of a church, we wouldn't do anything with our right hands. We'd become very left-handed, and we wouldn't do anything with our foreheads. That's where Catholics put their ashes, and what do they do with their right hand to tell everyone that they're a Catholic, even when they go to the plate to bat in, the, in Major League Baseball or they catch a touchdown in the NFL, they do 